Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Everybody knows the names of Civil War Army commanders like Grant, Lee, Sherman, the usual suspects. People listening to this show also know about Corps leaders like Longstreet and Hancock, even some of the great division leaders, Patrick Claiborne or John Buford. But that still leaves a lot of notable officers whose stories aren't well known, even among students of the Civil War. One of them commanded the 2nd Division of the Army of the Potomac's Cavalry. His record has been rescued from obscurity by historian Edward Longacre, author of Unsung Hero of Gettysburg, the story of Union General David McMurtry Gregg. We'll talk with him, the author, not the general, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath. Emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina. Not coming to you from the Brewster Building, but we'll be there next year. It's No, it's June of 2021, first Wednesday in June, and we are still dealing with the lingering effects of the worldwide uh, COVID epidemic that kept me out of the Brewster Building much of the past year, but we'll be back there in the fall when this show resumes. We won't be there tonight, won't be there next week, we'll be there soon, hopefully. Whether we're here or there, however, I am not speaking for the Brewster Building or for East Carolina University or for anybody else, just myself. And my guest, likewise, speaks only for himself here on the show. Uh, This week's show is not brought to you by Villa Verde, Greenville's premier Caribbean food restaurant, where my wife stopped a few minutes ago and brought home a Cuban sandwich for me to have after the show tonight. Uh, 
they are this week's sponsor who doesn't know they're a sponsor. They're not paying for it. They've never heard of the show. A few weeks ago, it was Cookout, the Southeast premier budget drive through fast food uh, restaurant. Who knows who it will be next week? Possibly some week someone will actually hear the show and decide to buy a commercial. But no need for that to happen. We can still tell you where to eat when you're here in Greenville. Uh, the other thing we're all doing in Greenville these days is watching baseball. The spring semester is over, but the baseball team is still playing. They had, they won the uh, conference, American Athletic Conference this year, which was great. They didn't win the conference tournament after dropping the first game, but they won three games in it. They did all right, and they have qualified to host the the national, uh, the, the regional version of the national tournament. This coming weekend, there will be four teams here in Greenville, and the winner of that moves on to the Super Regionals and eventually to the National College World Series. I found college baseball to be quite entertaining to watch. I never watched it when I was in college because uh, my alma mater, the University of Michigan, is uh, too far north to play baseball while the students are still there. Their season didn't have any home games until we all went home in May. Uh, but they have a good team. Michigan is in the the, uh, the national field of 64, as well as ECU. It's conceivable they could meet in Omaha. Uh, we shall see. The thing about these college games is the players really care. They aren't that good. Uh, most of them are not going to play in the minors, much less the major leagues. And it's just free of all the uh, of, of much of the baggage that goes with professional sports. It's it's just a, a pleasure to watch even if the quality is, is not as high. Uh, where the quality is high is in the people showing up here on Civil War Talk Radio. Next week, Kent Masterson-Brown will return to the show to talk about his brand new book, Mead at Gettysburg, A Study in Command, and we'll finish up the 2020-2021 season with Larry Daniel on June 16th. He also has been here before. Uh, we'll talk about his work on the Army of Tennessee. It's called Conquered, Why the Army of Tennessee Failed. And that'll bring us to the end of our season. As always, your uh, comments and suggestions for shows for the season that'll start in the fall of 2021 are always welcome. I've got some shows already lined up, but look forward to hearing from you uh, about ideas for more. Uh, Hopefully get to see some of you. We'll be traveling with Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours this fall. Uh, between October 8th and October 16th, the tour called This Hallowed Ground will be underway. Uh, it'll be the resumption of touring after a long hiatus because of, of the pandemic. Uh, our friends at uh, the Blue and Gray Education Society, some of you are familiar with them, have restarted their tours on a small scale now. And uh, we'll be doing the same in the fall with Stephen Ambrose tours I presume they'll want everyone to be vaccinated uh, for safety's sake, so be sure you get that done. And sign up for a tour and come along. It will be fun. Uh, You can learn about all these things, as always, from the website www.impedimentsofwar.org or the Impediments of War Facebook page, both maintained by Mark Gaffney, who keeps all these things up to date. And at the website, you can donate to Civil War Talk Radio, the uh, misnamed book fund because I don't spend all the money on books. I spend some of it on uh, on really whatever crosses crosses the, the table that day. If we need a new dehumidifier for the upstairs, 
I look in the fund and see, is there enough for that? Well, no, but we can help. Uh, so your donations are not tax deductible. They are purely uh, uh, generous support to show you enjoy the show. And uh, and they do help. There are show expenses occasionally. I do have to buy the book uh, for our discussion, and I appreciate when you help out with that. So please feel free to continue donating and uh uh, supporting the show, it's it's very welcome. Also welcome is our guest tonight, Edward G. Longacre. He is the author of Unsung Hero of Gettysburg, the story of Union General David McMurtry Gregg. Mr. Longacre, are you there? Jerry, I am here. Welcome to the show. Glad to have you aboard. Uh, yeah. You have written many, many Civil War books, and your name has been on the list of people to get on the show for a long time, so I'm delighted uh, that you're here, uh, but I understand you are retired, but uh, worked as a Defense Department historian for uh, as a career. Is that accurate? That's that's correct. And it wasn't with the Army. I was an Air Force historian for 29 years. Uh, first so, at headquarters so, SAC Strategic Air Command uh, mm-hmm. in Nebraska, and later here in Virginia at Headquarters Air Combat Command, strictly a civilian position. <laughs> Made for an interesting mix of subjects, writing Air Force history, much of it classified top secret by day, and Civil War mm-hmm. history at night. I was, I was going to ask about the overlap, the, the Confederate Air Force or the uh, you know, Union Strategic Air Command, uh, but but obviously these are two quite different topics. Did, did that uh, did folks at work know what you did uh, in your spare time? They did, and uh, I had no problems doing with it uh, about it. But I did know that some of my colleagues in the Air Force history program had um, superiors who frowned upon them writing anything except Air Force history and even thinking anything but Air Force, even in their spare time. I never had that problem. Well, that, that's good. That's It's one of the delights of history is being able to, is to have the autonomy to write about what you want when you're in a, a civil service job. Obviously, you don't have that that's same. That's exactly right. But as but, I said, it was an interesting mix, although since I wrote a lot of Top Secret, I learned to write for a very limited audience early on. I like to think I have a <clears throat> little bit larger readership out there now. I, I certainly hope so, and, and uh, certainly you've, you've written about a number of Civil War figures, and I, I would guess most listeners are familiar with your name as a result. Uh, let me ask about the topic, then. Uh, David McMurtry, Greg, uh, he is just barely the most famous Union cavalry general named Greg, uh, ahead of his cousin John Irvin Greg. Uh, That's right. That's a pretty obscure guy to pick. Why, why pick this fellow? Uh, good question. Uh, I think simply got interested in him when I was a college undergraduate and began researching cavalry. It started with my great-grandfather's regiment. When I was in 11th grade, I found out I had a, an ancestor in a Philadelphia cavalry regiment, and that's what got me started writing about the war. But uh, my interest in Greg specifically got heightened years later when I was pursuing uh, my doctorate in American history at uh, Temple University. I had the good fortune to study under the late Professor Russell Wigley, who I always regarded as the finest military historian and academic. Uh, Russ grew up 
in Greg's adopted hometown of Reading, Pennsylvania. As a teenager, he, he cut the grass at the local cemetery, and he paid special attention to the general's grave and began studying his life. <clears throat> when he began writing, uh, he wrote a series of articles, both for magazines and scholarly journals, about Greg, but never a book. But more than once, I heard him say that Greg deserved a full-length biography, and that suggestion resonated with me. Well, uh, first, let me apologize. So I addressed to you as Mr. Longacre, not Dr. Longacre, and I, I should have been aware of your, <laughs> okay. your background. I've never that. taught except as an adjunct at a couple of colleges, including uh, William and Mary, where I taught uh, U.S. military history. But uh, my full-time job being what it was, I never really considered myself a professor, so I hardly ever used the term, uh, even professionally. But you know you earned it, so uh, we'll, we'll 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 go with that. Uh, Russ Wigley was also the uh, the the advisor of, of a good friend and colleague of mine, Michael Palmer, uh, who just retired oh, yeah. from B- from. Well, Mike ECU. and I were students together in the uh, oh, early seventies really? at Temple. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He yeah, he we, uh, um, he was. We bumped oh, into each other occasionally over the years, usually at conventions of some kind or other. And I yeah. often wonder what happened to him. I have not been in touch with him for quite a while. He he was department chair when I came to East Carolina in the early 2000s. Oh, that's right. I forgot. East Carolina, sure. He worked, He was uh, one of William Still's people. And then he, did he take over for Dr. Still? Well, Still was the directed the uh, the Maritime Studies Program, which is ECU's unique right. archaeology-history hybrid. It's within the history department. Uh, mm-hmm. So so And Mike was the chair of the history department per se, Uh Okay. Bill Still was uh-huh. followed by, uh, uh, I guess, Larry Babbitts was next. No, no. Um, no uh, I'll, I'm blanking on the, the next guy. I'll, I'll think of it as soon as the show's over. Uh, but Mike remained chair for a while. Then I, I, he went to do some other academic work for the, uh, for the provost to sit in at the English department as chair, and I took his place. Is he retired he went, now? He retired uh, just a couple years ago. Just, just oh, okay. this okay. past year. Well, if you see him, say li- hi from me. I, I will. He's living in Florida. I haven't seen him myself in some time. Oh, okay. Uh, his health wasn't great. He's down there in the sun, huh? Okay. Yeah, I think he's enjoying life, hopefully. And, uh, uh, but no, he and I, I think he won the Samuel Elliott Morrison Award for one of his books. Yes, yes. He's an outstanding uh, historian. I was just referring to his book on, on Lee, Lee Moves North about the... 62 and 63 campaigns Uh, but he uh, yeah he was my mentor as a department chair he he taught me about chairing and I believe his Dr. Wigley's copies of the official records uh, are the ones that Mike had in his office uh, really the the Civil War official records or the Temple Library copy uh, and his uh-huh. wife wouldn't let him keep them in the house because there's, you know, how big they are. And so I ended up I know. Doing I'm that. looking at mine right now. I got two bookshelves full right in front of me. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, my wife wouldn't let me keep them at home either. So I've got them in my the office now on, on, yeah. on campus. But uh, anyway, we, we could talk about Mike all night. Let's, uh, Greg is the person we're talking about. Uh, General David McMurtry, Greg. So you, you. Had a connection through through these people, uh, through through your own family, through people you know. Uh, what? Um, as I read this book, I thought 
I, I felt a sense of struggle on the part of the historian that there, there's a lot of times when you when you had to say, you know, we don't know where he went next. Um, it, he, it sounds like he did not document his life very thoroughly. That's right. In, in a way, it reminds me of one of his notable character traits. He was a very private man and very mm-hmm. uh, protective of his privacy, stemming from, I believe, some early tragedies in his life. Uh, he uh, lost his father, for instance, when he was... Uh, uh, 12. His mother died when he was 14. He lost three of his eight siblings by the time he was 18, including a beloved uh, brother, older brother, who died in his arms. Mm-hmm. And that had an effect on him, as far as can be determined, or from early on and through his West Point career, and I assume into his professional military career. He was always a, a private person and a quiet self-composed. A, a friend of his had this quote that I always like, quote, although mm-hmm. always pleasant and courteous, he seemed to live within an invisible circle inside the boundaries of which but few were allowed to trespass. Well, that, that is a great quote. I say that really describes uh, uh, the, the Greg who comes through in this book, and uh, your, your book, in a sense, successfully breaks through that circle and tells us uh, something about him. We're going to take a short break. We'll come back in just a minute, talk more. Our guest tonight is Edward G. Longacre, author of Unsung Hero of Gettysburg, the story of Union General David McMurtry Gregg. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice of Variety Channel. Attention veterans, are you ready to be your own boss? It's time to launch your own ideas into reality. Discover your clean writing style. Gear up with Marine Corps trained motivator Christina Silva. Christina is a positive energy promoter with a special gift in connecting with innovators. Get the Military Heroes 411 and glean from experts every week by listening to The Christina Silva Show. We're educating our veterans live on The Christina Silva Show, live at 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. 
And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Ed Longacre, author of Unsung Hero of Gettysburg, the story of Union General David McMurtry Gregg. So you mentioned, uh, Ed, that, that Gregg was a West Pointer. Did he meet uh, many future opponents or colleagues uh, from the Civil War there? He did. He did, despite this reference I made to his... Uh being a kind of an insular person, he made quite a few friends, both uh, northern and southern born at the academy. And he managed to keep in touch with a great many of them throughout the war, including those on the other side. Probably his his uh, best friend at the academy was William Dorsey Pender of in North Carolina, who mm-hmm. was a notable Confederate general, mortally wounded at Gettysburg, but uh, with whom Greg not only was friendly with at West Point, but with whom he served on the northwestern frontier before the war. Uh, He had uh, many other friends, too, uh, most of them northern. Uh, And he did, as I said, manage to keep in touch with a lot of them, as as a lot of other generals did. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've been writing lately about General Custer, and he went out of his way to keep in touch with as many (laughs) of his Confederate friends who had been uh, um, students of his at West Point as as he could and Greg was pretty much the same way and you mentioned he, he served on the northwest frontier did he in, have combat experience there one doesn't think of uh, the northwest as a site of a lot of, of fighting but uh, what he about did. his experience what mm-hmm. came Washington State and Washington Territory he was involved in a major battle on the, in what was called the, the Steptoe uh, Expedition. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was in May of uh, 1858 when he was serving with the 1st United States Dragoons and was involved in what could have become an even greater massacre of American troops by Native Americans than Custer's many years later because his small uh, expeditionary force, about 160 men, were surrounded by almost 1,000 warriors. And uh, it looked as if they were going to be wiped out. In fact, his commander, that is Greg's commander, had pretty much issued orders that the men would stay where they were after the first day's battle, even though they knew they'd be overwhelmed the next day and would die like gentlemen. Well, of course, some of his subordinates, including Greg, tried to talk him out of it because they thought there might be a way to escape before they were attacked again the next day. And Greg found a route that uh, some inattentive uh, Indian sentinels were supposedly guarding, and he was able to take a leading role in the retreat that saved the column from being wiped out. So... He has experience. He's got West Point training. He goes, when the war breaks out in 1861, he goes east. And uh, a lot of people with that background got promoted quickly. Uh, They got a star, even two stars, uh, division or or higher command. But one of the themes in your book is that Greg was not much of a self-promoter. No, he was not. Uh, He preferred to allow performance rather than personality 
to uh, further his uh, record, and he never let ego or ambition get in the way of his actions. One of the reasons why he started off on the wrong foot as far as promotion was that when the war began, he was in far off California. (laughs) He was not able to get east in time for first bull run. But an academy classmate of his, William Woods Averell of New York State, did. And he was lowered down the list of graduates of Greg's class uh, of 1855. But because he was in the right place, he not only took part in the battle, but when Averell's commanding officer was moved up to division command, Averell, who was then only a lieutenant, was given command of a volunteer brigade, which he led throughout the battle. Got him all kinds of publicity, put him on the road to high rank. By the time Greg reached the uh, fighting front from California, Averill was uh, already uh, ensconced as the first major uh, cavalry commander, Union cavalry commander in the East, and Greg ended up serving under him for several months. It was a slightly embarrassing situation, as Averill wrote in his post-war memoirs, because he knew that Greg had a much uh, higher standing in the academy than he did, and probably had had more pre-war experience. But Averill was where he was, Greg where he was, and Averill made a point of saying how gracious and unassuming Greg was at accepting a command under him for the first several months of the war. So at this point then, uh, Greg is serving as a, a regimental commander? Yes, that- largely through Averill's uh, assistance, he did finally transition to command of a volunteer regiment, the mm-hmm. 8th Pennsylvania Cavalry. This was in January of 1862. So he had already been serving for some months as a lowly captain in the regulars. But in January 62, his volunteer service began, and he did move up uh, fairly rapidly, and, and yet not as rapidly as he probably should have, given his background, uh, his service, and his uh, obvious ability, tactical ability. Uh, he did not make a brigadier general until very late that year. Actually, it wasn't confirmed until January of 63. And he never did make two-star general. He was a brevet two-star at war's end, and only at the end of the war did he receive the second star by brevet. So mm-hmm. he he never achieved the rank and authority, uh, as did many of his colleagues of perhaps lesser ability, but he never showed any jealousy. He never showed any uh, uh, anger at being left behind. He just put his head down, served as, as well as he could with becoming modesty and mm-hmm. absolute professionalism. So once he gets that uh, Brigadier's star by, by early 1863, of course, uh, Joseph Hooker by that time was commanding the Army of the Potomac. Uh, you had an interesting story in the book about the, the great review of, of April 1863 when uh, uh, Greg almost killed the president. Um, yeah, now that would have been a, a kind of detriment to his career. That happened. <laughs> How did that happen? Uh, because he had purchased a horse from a subordinate, a very spirited horse, 
short time before Lincoln reviewed the Army in April of 63. And he rode the horse for the first time uh, alongside the president, escorting him down the line of his division. And when his, the soldiers, when the troopers in his division unsheathed their swords as a group, the rafts got the horse to running. And he took off like a shot, carrying Greg across uneven ground ditches and uh, hillocks and everything. And the president thought he needed to keep pace on his horse, even though uh, Lincoln was a much more ungainly rider than Greg, and tried to keep up with him. Uh, It took, I don't know how many minutes, maybe 10, 15 minutes or more for Greg to finally rein in his steed because they had not put the proper kind of bit in the horse's mouth that could have been used to slow him down through through pain, I guess, is what it amounted to. And, of course, Greg was afraid he was going to end up killing his commander-in-chief because Lincoln <laughs> barely managed to stay in the saddle. Fortunately for Greg, at the end of the ride, from talking to the president, he realized that Lincoln assumed this was the proper pace for a cavalry <laughs> officer to ride at, and therefore he he didn't think there was anything really untoward uh, about the ride. And, of course, he never said anything to Greg about it, but you know, Greg came within a, uh, a close margin of, of losing the president, and uh, I don't see how he could ever have recovered from that. Yeah, I have to say that that definitely goes on onto your permanent record when you accidentally cause yeah. accident for the president. Uh, now the the review is followed shortly after by the Chancellorsville campaign, and this is one of the first times Army of the Potomac's cavalry attempts to step out in an offensive fashion. Uh, Stoneman leads the raid that's supposed to be in conjunction with with Hooker's offensive, but it. It doesn't go particularly well. Did that, what was Greg's part in in that uh, in the Stoneman raid? Well, Greg wrote in a column that for a time was personally commanded by uh, Stoneman, the uh, raid mm-hmm. leader, and he descended on a couple of towns around the uh, uh, Virginia Central Railroad that they intended to break up, and uh, encountered a kind of an embarrassing situation when he was told that uh, the depot that he was attacking was heavily guarded by Confederates. And Greg spent a long time lining up his forces to get them in the exact right positions to attack the town from all different angles. This was pretty much at the behest of Stoneman, who was looking over his shoulder. And when the attack began and they raced through the town, they found no Confederates at all in there. All the preparations they'd taken, which cost them a certain amount of time, were for naught. So the whole raid got off to a bad start. And, in fact, Lincoln himself, hearing about the troubles early on, wired uh, uh, Army headquarters saying that he thought this was a, a botch. He said, this, has got, this is another failure already, from what I can tell. And it was, because uh, Stoneman's men created a lot of miscellaneous damage to various railroads and bridges and culverts and all kinds of infrastructure items. But it didn't have any uh, effect, either long or short range, on the Chancellorsville campaign, which, of course, was Hooker's great debacle. And it contributed nothing, in other words, to the long-range effects of the Army. Now, I have always 
always believed that a cavalry raid could be successful only if it was launched in con- absolute conjunction as much as possible, given the poor communications of the day, with the main army. It had to have some sort of a supporting effect that really uh, aided the fortunes of the, of the army. And if it didn't, it was just a horse ride. And that's pretty much how Stoneman's raid ended up, because it was not coordinated properly with the main army. And at the end, it uh, it just uh, went went by the board, and Stoneman lost his job as a result. So, well, uh, see, at the, that the point most... of the war, the army just didn't Go know ahead. how to raid. Mm-hmm. The well, a month later, we had the most famous example of a cavalry uh, a, a cavalry enterprise that is not coordinated with its main army, and this is, of course, Stuart's ride uh, to the north as Lee is invading Pennsylvania. But, again, listeners know the outlines of that story well, how Stuart gets to finally links up with Lee on the second day, in July 2nd, at Gettysburg, and then threatens the, the Union uh, flank and rear with his cavalry. And that, of course, brings us to the subtitle of your book, uh, or no, the, the main title of the book, Unsung Hero of Gettysburg. Uh, let's talk about uh, – we're going to take a break in a minute, but let's, let's – uh, in, introduce the topic. Uh, where is Greg at Gettysburg, and, and and how does this shape up? Sounds good. Uh, so so uh, uh, go ahead and, and uh, uh, well, lay the groundwork. If he you was stationed three and a half miles east of the main battlefield at Gettysburg, where he was mm-hmm. specifically ordered to guard the right flank and rear of General Meade's army, because there was a a suspicion that Stuart was coming that way and even though they did not know in advance of course General Robert E. Lee decided to attack Fundley on the third day of the battle July 3rd with forces that became known as Pickett's Charge and even though we have no evidence that it was actually linked in in Lee's mind uh, Stuart would be put in a position where he could attack from the rear at the same time pretty much a picket struck from the front. This could have had all kinds of consequences for the Army of the Potomac had Stuart, in fact, been able to hit home when he was supposed to. But uh, Greg, with the 11th hour help of a brigade of Michigan cavalry, not in his own division, commanded by General George Armstrong Custer, who had only been a brigadier general for a few days, having just been promoted from first lieutenant in the regular army to brigadier general in the cavalry. And using uh, Gregg's help at a critical time, Gregg was able to stave off multiple attacks by an even larger number of Confederate forces under Stuart that uh, by day's end had secured the field three miles from the main battlefield and prevented any attack on the rear at a critical at a critical time. So, even though, uh, and part of it has to do with the fact that he was far enough away from the main battlefield that he wouldn't get uh, quick identification with the victory. Greg just never got the acclaim that he deserved for doing what he did. In a sense, it kind of got lost in the shuffle, 
and only after the war when veterans uh, of both Greg's and Custer's Ben began writing their memoirs and articles and books did it become apparent just how important Greg's defense of the Union right and rear was because he certainly deserved credit and he never really got it. Uh, the most that he heard from the Army was a short telegram from Meade's headquarters thanking him late on the 3rd for what he did. And I don't believe he got any more official commendation from the Army for his feat uh, then, then or later. But he certainly deserved the credit. It just eluded him, strictly eluded him. Well, he was, you mentioned Custer's Brigade does much of the fighting, and as you go today to the East Cavalry Field at Gettysburg, you see monuments to, to Michigan regiments and Custer's men, uh, but it was in fact Greg who, who kept Custer there. Greg's own brigades, you point out, were, were assigned elsewhere that day, and, and if he had followed orders strictly, he would have taken all his troops off that part of the battlefield. And there would have been no one to stop Stuart. There would have been no one at all. Uh, Greg had three brigades, one of which was entirely uh, detached from him, put in the Army's rear miles away. Mm -hmm. He lost three regiments out of another brigade who were also detached for various duties, and his third brigade for a time wasn't with him either. They had been sent on a reconnaissance toward the town of Gettysburg. So Greg was pretty much uh, lacking um, at one point. 60 or 70 percent of his force that was assigned to him. Had he not had um, Custer's men on hand to help him, the odds would have been in such favor of Stuart's that the battle probably would have been one-sided in the Confederates' favor. So he absolutely needed uh, Custer's men, but he was responsible for placing them pretty much in the positions they were in that enabled them to stop Stuart. Not only that, Greg fed in as many troops as he could in support of Custer all over the field. And they did uh, play a major part also in stopping stopping Stuart. Custer got most of the acclaim simply because he led the two most uh, flamboyant charges of the day two of his four Michigan regiments against Stuart. And the first one went awry and didn't achieve much. The second one, toward the end of the day, did cut through Stuart's men at a point where they uh, caused the Confederate ranks to be disorganized and eventually thrown into retreat. Still, it was Gregg who uh, plotted the strategy of the day and had a big hand in the tactics as well. And Custer was one of the first to admit this, and uh, his men did too. In their writings about Gettysburg, they unanimously praised General Gregg. They said he was the chess master of the day, even though a lot of the glory went to his um, subordinate. And and hence the title, The Unsung Hero of Gettysburg, which is the title of the book we're discussing. It's about Union General David McMurtry Gregg. The author is Edward G. Longacre, our guest tonight. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live. 
the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Edward G. Longacre, author of Unsung Hero of Gettysburg, the story of Union General David McMurtry Gregg. We finished the last segment talking about Greg's role at the Battle of Gettysburg on July 3rd as Pickett's charge is being prepared and takes place. Uh, Greg commands the Union forces in the cavalry fight uh, to the east of the battlefield that kept Jeb Stuart from interfering with the Union lines, uh, possibly interrupting the defense of, of Pickett's charge. But uh, Ed, Ed, as you point out, people don't know much about this. It, it, it's not something widely talked about. Uh, one factor you mentioned is that immediately after the battle, uh, Greg goes missing from the historical record. We, we don't even yes, know where he was. A very, very strange story. As far as as far as we can determine, uh, there's no way to find Greg, and for the immediate week after Gettysburg. Uh, he just disappeared almost entirely from the official record. Even his own after-action report of the campaign failed to address his status during that period. His division, uh, he, he didn't get back his 3rd Brigade for quite some time, more than a week, 10 days or so. And his other two brigades were taken from him, detached from him, and were assigned to other commanders, including in one case an infantry general, to pursue the retreating Confederates. Uh, the, the events don't appear to be a form of punishment. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he did, as I mentioned, receive praise from Army headquarters for what he had done on July 3rd. Now, I wonder if it had to do with his health, because throughout the war, he was susceptible to debilitating fevers that put him in uh, 
on medical leave for several times. And he was also susceptible to fainting spells, undiagnosed spells where he just fainted away, not, not from fear or anything. Mm-hmm. It all started in the pre-war army, and according to his son, David Jr., who wrote a unpublished memoir of his father's service, it was an, affli- an, affli- an affliction that bothered him for the rest of his life. So I'm wondering if he was incapacitated during part of this campaign. He didn't say so. He didn't offer any any explanations. And as far as can be determined, he did not go on medical leave during this period. That's just a guess. I can't think of what else it could have been. He certainly uh, did not deserve to have his troops taken from him. The mm-hmm. records seems to indicate that he was not with them, that he did not go with either of the two brigades that uh, went on pursuit duties, and he was in a central location where they didn't even come back to him until the 12th of July. And go figure. So really, the mystery there, he does eventually rejoin uh, his troops, and, and he participates in the fall campaigns of the Army of the Potomac, but uh, again, listeners will know, not, not much of decision happened. You have Bristow Station and Mine Run and other engagements. In the winter of 64 to 63 to 64, uh, General Grant comes east to take over the direction of the, the Northern War effort and to uh, leaving Meade in command of the Army of the Potomac, but, but Grant travels with them, as, as people know. And Grant brings his own people with him, including uh, uh, Phil Sheridan, to command the cavalry. What what is what was Greg's relationship with Sheridan? Well, it could have been a really difficult relationship because those two officers were admittedly very different in temperament and leadership style. And they could easily have clashed in a way that prevented cordial cooperation. Some historians believe, incidentally, that Greg submitted his resignation from the Army on the eve of the Appomattox campaign because he didn't want to serve again with Sheridan, who at that point was about to return to the Petersburg front where Greg had been serving after months of campaigning in the Shenandoah Valley. Uh, I don't believe that's true. I don't believe it's true at all that uh, they had any troubles. Greg's son vehemently opposed the idea that there was any bad blood between his father and Sheridan. Uh, But they were very different. I mean, Greg was very uh, old school, gentlemanly, quiet. Uh, Sheridan was just the opposite, loud, boisterous, sometimes crude in speech and and mannerisms, and... uh, came down very hard, for instance, on subordinates who didn't measure up to his standards. Mm-hmm. Uh, even old old friends and colleagues of his, Greg, Greg was never like that. He, he never took out any frustration or anger on his subordinates or men. So they were admittedly very, very different in a lot of ways. But they got along. Uh, Greg never said anything about disliking Sheridan, and Sheridan, in his published memoirs, was always very uh, complimentary to to Greg. And when you think about it, Greg was the only division commander in 
Sheridan's Corps, who had previous experience in the cavalry. The 1st Division was commanded by General Alfred Torbert, who had been an infantry commander, took over early in 1864 after the death of the lamented General John Buford, who had commanded the 1st Division for a long time. And the 3rd Division of the Corps was commanded by James Harrison Wilson, who was an engineer officer, who had no prior military experience. I didn't know prior experience in the field as a field commander. He had been a member of Grant's staff, a protege to Grant, and Grant had put him in, into uh, command of the so-called Cavalry Bureau, a war department office in Washington, D.C. for several months to learn the ropes of cavalry service, but without actually serving in the field. So when Wilson and Torbert came in, Sheridan had no uh, high-ranking subordinate with uh, operational experience, except Greg. So you can see why he relied on him, depended on him as much as he did, and why he would have praised him for the good that he did for Sheridan, because he certainly helped Sheridan out of a lot of different difficult situations over the um, four months that they were together from April uh, to the end of uh, July of 1864. Now, at that point, Sheridan gets sent to the Shenandoah Valley by Grant, and uh, here you, you, we finally see Greg getting the promotion he seems long to have deserved to be put in charge of all the cavalry of the Army of the Potomac. Uh, the problem is Sheridan has taken most of it with him, so That's right. now That's he's right. in charge of what's left behind on the Petersburg front. But I was surprised by how many cavalry engagements there were in the Petersburg campaign that, that follows. Uh, That's Greg right. was very busy had, over the next had, few months. He had command not only his own truncated division, but also the small cavalry division of the Army of the James, in which my great-grandfather's regiment served. It was basically a, a large brigade, and that they were the troops that had to uh, patrol the Petersburg front, right and left, north and south, and um, they engaged in daily rounds, not only of scouting, reconnoitering, guarding wagon trains, but they fought in numerous battles and major skirmishes all during that time. It was a um, very grueling campaign, and, and Greg seems to have passed through it without breathing hard, certainly without complaining. Incidentally, one reason why I believe that he and Sheridan were on good terms throughout is that when Sheridan went to the Valley in early mm -hmm. August of 64, the Army was trying to determine which cavalry it should send with them. They had decided to send Torbert's 1st Division, but they hadn't decided on who else when Sheridan asked for a 2nd Division to be sent him. And Gregg wrote Army headquarters offering himself and his 2nd Division to go with uh, Sheridan to the Valley. That tells me there was no animosity between the two of them. I mean, Gregg had been serving with Sheridan for four months before that time, he certainly would have known by now that he could have continued that relationship without loss of self-respect self or honor. But anyway, Greg was finally put in command of the cavalry when most of the cavalry had left his theater. It was, a, in a sense, a hollow honor, but he made absolutely the most he could from it. And he won commendations right and left of the infantry uh, whose forces he supported on so many of those battlefields. 
Now, let me ask about uh, his resignation quite suddenly in February 1865. If it's not because of, of tension with Sheridan, uh, we just have a few minutes. Uh, what, why, why do you think he resigned? Well, I can tell you this. First of all, historians wonder that, wonder why, because he never, he never detailed his reasons for doing so. And there are a number of possible reasons. I'll tell you which mine is in a minute. First of mm-hmm. all, he claimed to, to uh, leave the Army early because he had, quote, pressing business duties back home in Pennsylvania. Now, a lot of historians have poo-pooed this idea, thinking that was not really the reason. Uh, however, in asking for prior leaves, as he had in other points of the war, uh, he had used those same terms uh, as the reasons. And I think it's because his family was in economic straits for most of the war. Uh, the idea about him refusing to serve again in Sheridan, we can dismiss that. Right. When I wrote my book, uh, Lincoln's Cavalrymen, A History of the Army of the Potomac's Horsemen, back 20 years ago, I made a lot of references to something that Greg himself told to one of his subordinates right before he resigned in the hearing of a Army surgeon who wrote his memoirs years later, many years later, in which Greg supposedly said he had lost his nerve. He couldn't go under fire anymore. It was just too much for for him to bear. And I latched onto that idea a little bit, although not completely, when I wrote that book years ago. Mm-hmm. It reminded me of a scene from a World War II movie, 12 O'Clock High, in mm-hmm. which Gregory Peck, who plays a hard-bitten and steel-nerved general in the U.S. Army Air Forces, and who has accompanied his men on every bombing mission, suddenly can't force himself physically to get into the cockpit of his B-17. He has reached the end of his, his physical and mental endurance, even though he's a brave, brave man. And I thought maybe that was the situation with Greg. But I don't think so anymore. Over the years, I've had a different, uh, different interpretation of these events. I think... Greg was trying to point out something, some flaw in himself that nobody else saw, because everybody talked about what a brave man he was under battle. I think it was self-deprecatory humor with a sarcastic edge. Uh, So I reject that idea now that even though I did years ago. There's another possible reason. Family lore says that when uh, Greg went home for leave, his last leave before leaving the Army in Christmas '64. His wife was appalled to find a bullet hole in his hat. Supposedly, one year earlier, she had tried to convince him to quit the field and take a desk job in Washington. His commanders had talked him out of it. But that's possible reason. And one final reason, which I think may have more to it than other historians would think, uh, the month before he resigned, uh, I should say a couple months before, in December of '64. His men went on a raid down from Petersburg along the Weldon Railroad toward North Carolina. During that expedition, he witnessed the effects of military atrocities. He saw Union deserters who had been captured, killed, their bodies mutilated, and he had been told that some Union troops to get even had captured uh, local uh, southern civilians and had hanged them. Or, or shot them before their officers could intervene. So 
I mean, the war was never uh, was never an exercise in, in, in chivalry, but there had been certain niceties observed earlier in the war. But by late 1864, the line between semi-official killing and killing for killing's sake seemed to have blurred so much that I have a feeling that old school Greg wondered if he really could continue in a war like that and maintain his uh, his honor. And uh, well, it is a fascinating. I apologize for interrupting. We have to bring it to an end. The next show is coming up. Um, no problem. But a very interesting uh, hypothesis, uh, consistent with everything we know about this man, the unsung hero of Gettysburg, the story of Union General David McMurtry Gregg, uh, written by Edward G. Longacre. Ed, thanks for being on the show tonight. Thank you, and I'd like to thank you on behalf of the man who really deserves the attention. That's David McMurtry Gregg. And listeners, as always, thanks for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.